Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ontario's mask mandate has ended. Are you still wearing yours? Social media disinformation is a reality during the war in Ukraine. Governments across Canada have grown in size over the last few years. We look at a report in that. Raceline radio host Eric Thomas breaks down Formula One's season opening race from coffee and donuts to ice cream. Tim Horton's latest concoction is making waves. And should NCAA athletes get paid for playing their sports? The GMH Podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast on 900 CHML. Today is the day many have been waiting for. Many others are dreading. Ontario's mask mandate comes to an end today. What are you doing today? Are you going to the mall sans mask or mask firmly in place, star 9900 on your cell phone? Will you ditch your mask right away or will you keep it on for the time being, you can send me an email, rick at 900chml.com. Go to Twitter at am900chml, at Rick Samprin. Already got a couple of tweets. Irish Bear 3 says, I have not been anyways. Interesting to note. I'm not sure if Irish Bear 3 has been outside over the last couple of years. Uh, Laura writes, I am not raising the white flag yet. So it sounds like Laura is going to continue to wear... Their mask, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your smartphone. Doug Ford has issued a tweet on this this morning saying, Good morning, Ontario. Today marks an important milestone in her fight with COVID. Thanks to your hard work, sacrifice, and willingness to rise to the occasion, Ontario is now at a place where we can safely remove the mask mandate in most settings. Please be kind, safe, and cautious. Well, when it comes to myself, I will still continue to wear a mask, at least for the time being. I know there's going to be an end date. It's just going to be that feeling out process. Now, two things we know. Oh, we know we know a few things now over the last couple of years. At, at first, we didn't know we didn't know much, but as the months and years have gone by, we know a few things. Number one, this virus is unpredictable. Yes. We know that there is a subvariant of Omicron, BA2, which is by many accounts now 50 to 60% more transmissible. But uh, if you were watching some of the newsmakers over the weekend, Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of the leading voices uh, throughout the pandemic down in the U.S., saying that it appears BA2 is not as deadly, certainly as Delta, and maybe somewhat on par with Omicron. So, yes, very transmissible, but not nearly as lethal, which is a good thing. Still in saying that, I'm going to keep my mask in place. My son's off to school as we speak. I hope he didn't miss the bus. (laughs) He has mask in hand, at least that's what he told me. And as we know that the Hamilton Public School Board, he's in the Catholic Board, but the Public Board saying that they will continue with their mask mandate until April 1st. Now, if you have a child in the Public Board and you want them to go to school without a mask, they can do so. They won't be sent home. And let's just hope that people are courteous of each other. If you want to wear a mask in the grocery store, wherever the case is, uh, let's hope that those without the mask do not take it upon themselves to belittle or berate those who continue to uh, feel a need to wear a mask. In many cases, people will be wearing masks because a family member or themselves are immunocompromised. Or maybe they're just not feeling it that day. You know, they're out at the corner store and, you know what, I just want to be extra cautious. 
905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. How are you feeling today as the mask mandate comes to an end? Are you okay? Are you taking your mask off? Are you thrilled to do so? Or are you dreading this decision? Knowing that others will be maskless. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Premier Doug Ford has said that he plans to keep wearing a mask in the provincial legislature for the first few days after the mandate lifts. My prediction is he will take it off tomorrow. The province's top doctor has said people must remain, quote-unquote, kind, considerate, and respectful toward those who continue to wear a mask. So it, there's no doubt in my mind that there's going to be an incident, maybe it's not plural, but there's going to be an incident in which someone with a mask, and someone's going to take a video of this, we all know, someone with a mask is going to be, um, I don't know, yelled at by someone without a mask. Hey, take your mask off now. It's a free country. You can do what you want. Well, yeah, it is a free country. You can wear a mask if you want. It kind of works both ways, doesn't it? Uh, Premier Doug Ford saying that uh, it's now your choice to do so. Right now, we're we're doing fairly well, but we're always going to be cautious. And anyone who wants to wear a mask, uh, they're they're more than welcome to. Um, it's going to be up to the the people. We have to move move forward from this. Like people, people are exhausted. You know, and the poor kids in the, those classrooms too. Like we 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 got to move on. All right, we got to move on here. But we've got Marcel calling in. Marcel, you're going to be wearing your mask. Or are you ditching it today? I'll be uh, ditching it. And the only thing I want to say is I completely agree with what you've been saying about people's choice. But uh, I'm not going to harass somebody. I expect the same in return. Yeah, absolutely. It should go both ways. Absolutely, 100%. Marcel, appreciate the call. Yeah, it can't it can't go just one way. If you decide not to wear a mask, that's fine too. It's your choice now. The mandate is over. It is now up to you on whether you want to wear a mask or not. So yeah, hopefully we don't see any videos on social media of someone with a mask getting berated, someone without a mask getting berated. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As we know, the mask mandate ended at 12.01 a.m. today. What's happening around the province? Well, let's check out Niagara, where we're joined by Medical Officer of Health for Niagara Region, Dr. Mustafa Hirji. Dr. Hirji, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well. How are you feeling as the mask mandate comes to an end in the province? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's an important marker of some of the success that we've made as a province in terms of combating COVID-19. And, you know, one statistic I always look at is that compared to the United States or the United Kingdom, we have had one third of the per capita deaths from COVID-19 as those countries, showing that we have had some real success. That being said, I do think it's probably a little early to remove the mask mandate. We are seeing that our hospitalizations are starting to go up again in Europe, where they removed them earlier than us, they've seen quite large increases. And the science table is saying that we're headed for a smaller wave than we had in, you know, in January. But nonetheless, another wave is coming. And so there's substantial risk still out there. And I think it would be really good that even though it's not required, that we all make that voluntary decision to keep wearing masks. So we can keep ourselves safe, but more importantly, we can keep the people who are more vulnerable around us safe. So would you describe today as a good day or a good step for Ontario residents? Or in the back of your mind, is there some concern because we'll see those rising hospitalizations, which is probably the most worrisome? Yeah, you know, I think it's been a good step over the last month to really see everything open back up. I think that has been great. I think that was absolutely necessary to go forward. 
I think the removing of mask mandates was maybe a step a little bit too early. But nonetheless, we still have the choice to wear masks. We can still make sure that, you know, we're ahead in the third period here with one-third the deaths of other countries. If we all choose to keep wearing masks, we can hopefully keep everybody safe and make sure that we really end this pandemic with far fewer people having died thanks to us being really diligent about wearing masks and always making sure to protect those around us. Is your best guess that most people in this province will continue to wear a mask? You know, I'm not sure what my best guess is. You just mentioned the poll that you're doing, which is showing that 57% of people are currently choosing to continue to wearing masks, which is actually really good news. And that does imply that at least the majority are going to start off by doing so. I'm hoping that we can, you know, build that number by convincing people of the importance of doing this and showing people that, you know, those of us who are wearing masks, that it's still a good thing to do and hopefully encourage others. We do know that uh, this virus has been unpredictable over the last couple of years. What are the odds that uh, even though today has come and many are celebrating the the maskless Monday, if you will, uh, what are the odds that we'll don the masks again by mandate sometime later on this year? You know, I have to say it's probably greater than 50%. Um, I suspect we won't end up doing that over the next month or two while we go through this last, you know, this next small wave. My big worry is what happens in the fall. In the fall, we've seen every year, you know, at least the last two years living with COVID-19, we've had a new increase of infections. We've gone into a lockdown in the December, January period, both the last couple of years. I do worry we're going to see another, you know, pretty large wave of infections come in the fall. And I do wonder if that's going to be something that we need to come back and do at that time. Of course, the best thing we can do to make sure we prevent that is, of course, make sure we've all got our three doses of vaccine. And let's not back up on that either. Absolutely. Dr. Hirji, thank you very much for your time today. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, and you too. That is Dr. Mustafa Hirji, Medical Officer of Health, Niagara Region. Don't forget, vote in our Twitter poll question of the day at AM900CHML. Ontario's mask mate ends today. Mask mandate ends today. Will you still be wearing yours? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. Social media companies mean to do more, to prevent propaganda, and to counter any form of Uh, disinformation. They're not technological companies, they're content producers. That is Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie asking other countries to push social media companies to take responsibility for propaganda and disinformation on their platforms. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. We have seen a litany of posts on social media in relation to the war in Ukraine. Unfortunately, not all of them are 100% accurate or truthful. Aaron Morrow is an associate professor at the Center for Digital Humanities at Brock University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Disinformation and social media seem to go hand in hand these days. Yeah, this is uh, really, you know, it's an unprecedented um, event that we're seeing in the digital media space. And it's an example of how, you know, something like, uh, you know, a war really is fought both on the ground, and we see that every day, but it's also being fought in social media, um, where uh, the information war um, is something that we're all mixed up in, and the way that we consume this information really matters. So what tips or maybe red flag should our listeners be aware of when they are consuming this information in relation to what's happening in Ukraine? 
Right. You know, it's it's really important to know that a lot of these messages are incredibly um, evocative. They're meant to kind of pull at our heartstrings and, and be highly emotional to consume. And so we need to be careful that when we share and amplify some of these messages, that we're not simply amplifying the lies that we want to believe, that a lot of these messages, though maybe perhaps tragic or uplifting, um, may be disingenuous or misinformation. And when debunked later on, we risk amplifying um, false reports and then, and then undermining true reports later on. And so it's very important that we, we work very slowly and that speed is an important part of this, that um, taking time to, to measure our emotions as we, as we work through this material and be very careful to, to consume from a variety of sources. Um, I think that the traditional media, the professional media, um, the news media that we, that we know um, are increasingly important in vetting the, the deluge of information that's coming out of Ukraine, um, because information wars are very much about taking up space. Um, that the more information that's that's out there and that's available uh, is really about um, dominating uh, the digital space. And in much the same way that in a war, it's about territory. Um, that owning a particular platform um, is very much what's what's being done by by either side. Um, but it's difficult to measure intent when things are moving so quickly. Talking about disinformation on social media in relation to the war in Ukraine with Aaron Morrow, Associate Professor at the Center for Digital Humanities at Brock University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Now, because this uh, battle is being fought in a nation that uh, its uh, traditional language is not uh, English, we're seeing a lot of social posts in other languages, such as Ukrainian, Russian, and and whatnot. And and some of them, uh, you know, include subtitles. Some people have... Um, you know, rifled through the information and have dissected what the individual or people are saying. Are those subtitles accurately depicting what that person is saying? And and if not, how can you find out? You know, I this is a great question. I, it's a question that I struggle with. I'm not a Russian speaker nor a Ukrainian speaker. And so this is, um, again, one of those situations where it's very important that we rely on our professional media to um, verify translations and to um, to be very um, cautious about the captions that are associated with particular images. Um, that older footage may be recycled. Um, you may notice um, even low-resolution images um, where a particular part of an image may be cropped, um, that these kinds of images and the captions and translations associated with them, um, there is simply no guarantee that, they are, that they're factual until they're verified by a professional. Um, and so, again, this is this is a moment where slowing down um, and letting the professional media do their jobs is incredibly important as we as we ensure that the both the provenance and the, the sourcing of these images um, is verified before we uh, we include it into what we know or believe to know to be true of the events that are unfolding in Ukraine. We know these days that many kids are staring at a screen for hours on end these days how can we protect them from uh, seeing something or watching something that they shouldn't be watching right and this is this is really about age right that that there's definitely a range of ages that uh, you know younger kids might be overhearing news on the on the radio or um, in the car or um, um, you know in the evening news on the television 
And so um, for the younger kids, I think it's just good to have a conversation um, about, um, you know, various events that are happening in the world so that they have a little bit of context for mom and dad and make sure that they have an awareness um, that if they have a question that they can ask, right, whether it's their teachers or their parents. For teenagers who are let free a little bit more, I think it's important to just have an ongoing conversation. Um, maybe, you know, consider having your teenagers screen cap, um, you know, images that they find on social media. And then, you know, maybe if you have a no phones at the table rule for dinner, uh, maybe allow that um, to happen. So you can have a conversation over these images and maybe a little bit of a debate um, about whether particular image is true or if it's what kind of um, emotions it's trying to pull on. So that you can have that open conversation and, and really couch these things in a sense of, of, of criticism, of, of paranoia. Um, these are all healthy um, uh, kind of perspectives to have around the media when there's so much propaganda flying around. That is a great tip. Aaron Morrow is our guest, Associate Professor, Center for Digital Humanities at Brock University. We have about a minute. You're teaching some elementary school students about propaganda this week. What's your message to them? You know, it's it's very much about this uh, this notion of just having conversation uh, because I think that the conversations like the ones we're having right now on the radio um, really slow things down. And on social media, the the platforms are designed for speed. They're designed to maintain our attention. Um, and so, having an understanding of of the for for younger kids in the in the grade schools to so have an understanding of how the platforms operate, that it's about capturing our attention and very much playing on our emotions. So very much the same message message is important for all of us. But for younger people, this might be one of the first times where they're hearing some of these good media literacy lessons. And so, you know, depending on the age, um, I think for for younger kids, um, you know, talking about war is is a scary thing, and and it's something that needs to be um, explained in in a way that um, you know, it's for moms and dads to, to talk to their kids about. But it's also about, um, you know, just uh, making sure that, that young people and teenagers are not perhaps um, digging too deep. I think that it's important for teenagers to kind of pull out of the social media platforms and, and maybe gain some of that media literacy by reading a whole range of news stories and being able to balance that. And I think that that long-form journalism is something that younger people can approach. Absolutely. Professor Morrow, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Aaron Morrow is an associate professor at the Center for Digital Humanities at Brock University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A new study just released by the Fraser Institute has revealed a startling trend. The independent, nonpartisan Canadian public policy think tank looked at the size of federal, provincial, and municipal governments and found that they have, well, changed in size. Alex Whalen is a policy analyst with the Fraser Institute and is the author of The Size of Government in Canada in 2019 Report. Alex, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? Doing well, Rick. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your new study. What did you find? Well, we found across the board that uh, the size of government in Canada was increasing before the pandemic, both for the country as a whole and in eight of ten provinces. Uh, specifically in Ontario, uh, that province received one of the largest increases in the size of government uh, in the period that we measured, which was 2007 to 2019. And those represent the two years immediately before the two most recent recessions. 
Now, this wasn't a surprising discovery, was it? Were you expecting to see these sorts of increases? Uh, that, that's probably a fair comment, uh, that we were expecting to see this in the data. Uh, a number of provinces and the federal government as a whole have uh, implemented policies that have ramped up government spending, and at the same time we're seeing relatively weak economic growth. So uh, not a surprising result, but certainly a concerning one. Was it maybe a surprise that all but two provinces during that time frame, 2007 to 2019, grew? Not necessarily. When you look at the policies pursued by the federal government alone, there's been a massive increase in spending over this uh, period of time. So I I wouldn't say that we were shocked by that, but a bit more concerned with the uh, ramifications. And and I guess uh, one of the key points that we try to raise in the study is that really this impairs provinces' abilities and the federal government's ability to help the economy recover coming out of the pandemic. I do want to dig down a little bit deeper into that sentiment, but before we get to that, I do want to focus on the two provinces that didn't grow during that 12-year time frame, and that was Saskatchewan and PEI. What did they do differently? Certainly, um, those are interesting cases. Uh, So the measure that we use in the study is government spending as a share of GDP, so as a share of the economy. So obviously, as you can appreciate, there are two variables there. There's the government spending, and then there's the size of the economy. I think in both cases, there are probably two factors at at play. There there may be a bit of government uh, spending restraint, but uh, both of those provinces enjoyed fairly strong uh, economic growth. So as you can appreciate, um, government spending could, could even grow, but if the economy is growing at a faster rate, the relative size of government decreases. So does this, do, do all the provinces that grew in size, and, and we're you know lumping in municipal governments here as well, um, the, the better the economy, the more apt they are to spend or reinvest that money, I guess? That's not a question that we specifically looked at in the study. I, okay. I think what I would say is if the rate of growth in the economy as a whole exceeds the rate of growth in government spending, uh, the size of government could actually decrease. Um, so there is the variable of economic growth there that, that factors into whether government has grown in proportion to the economy. And, and that really is what we looked at in the study. Right. That makes sense. Alex Whalen is our guest. He's a policy analyst with the Fraser Institute, and he has penned a new report called The Size of Government in Canada in 2019, which shows uh, all but two of the provinces in this uh, country uh, between 2007 and 2019 grew during that time frame. More importantly, and you kind of alluded to it a couple of minutes ago, what impact will the size of government, the growing size of government, have on the economy as we continue to emerge from pandemic lockdowns and restrictions? Yeah, that's a, that's a very important point uh, that comes out of this study, is that uh, the growing size of government will impair provinces and the federal government's ability to recover post-pandemic. So one of the concepts that we raise in the study is that within economic literature, there's a concept known as the optimal size of government. So in an ideal world, um, how large is government? Well, there are a number of different ways to tackle that question, but the growth optimizing size of government. So in other words, what's the size of government that allows the economy to grow at the greatest rate is 26 to 30 percent. 
Every province in Canada is above that level right now, except for Alberta, and the country as a whole is above that level. Some provinces are way above that level. So one of the concerns about the size of government, then, if you have provinces like Ontario, which are in the range of 40%, or, or where I'm based in the maritime provinces, we see 57, 58, 60%. I think the economic literature is pretty clear that a size of government that is that large is holding back economic growth, and, and part of that is that it crowds out the private sector. So could one of the measures or one of the key features of governments going forward is to uh, trim the fat, so to speak? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we're certainly not saying that uh, government should be zero or anything crazy like that. Governments can make lots of productive investments, but I think it, it's a good time to take a close look at where government is spending with an understanding uh, that uh, governments across Canada are above, uh, well above, in some cases, optimal levels. Alex, great job on this report. Very interesting findings, and thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Alex Whalen, policy analyst, Fraser Institute, author of The Size of Government in Canada in 2019. Pretty, uh, I guess... Shocking to learn that all but two governments, uh, when you clump in provincial governments, have grown over the last number of years. And, of course, this also looked at federal and municipal governments as well. The size of government way larger, way, way larger when they ha- than they have been uh, in previous years, that is for sure. Perhaps one of the belt-tightening maneuvers that can happen as we look at our post-pandemic budgets, both federally, provincially, and municipally. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What an electric opening to the Formula One season yesterday in Bahrain with the Bahrain Grand Prix. So much to unpack, so let's get right to it. Eric Thomas is the host of Raceline Radio. You can hear it Sundays at 8 p.m. right here on 900 CHML. E.T., good morning. How are you? Good morning. We're good. Uh, you played the right music, which is which is, which is is great, because that's a, that's a very stirring uh, theme to the uh, to the Sky Sports F1 coverage. I, I watched a video of that, and it was interesting how they did it because if you notice, it's it's symphonic, and it, it was recorded with a full conductor and a full symphonic orchestra. But instead of using a traditional uh, percussion section from a, an orchestra, they used rock drummers, and and you can tell the 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 percussion line in that thing, you know, really propels for it. But it's a very very stirring piece of music and what a stirring opening you scared me a little when you said it was an electric opening i thought maybe f wanted me the conversion to all electric before <laughs> not, we were all not ready. yet not yet <laughs> it's it's coming you and i know <laughs> we know it's coming yeah with 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 the mixed fanfare but we won't get into that right yeah. now i mean un, when you and i talked about f1 this year and and not that long ago and uh we we, we previewed it we talked i talked about a wish list that i had and one was that you know we we, we figured that, that Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes would come flying out of the box. They didn't do that with a car that's substandard, which still shocks the heck out of me. One of the other ones was that would would Ferrari finally jump up and become competitive, and and challenge Mercedes and challenge Max Verstappen, the defending champion, Red Bull. And if you're going by the opening race of this season, uh, delivered with a one-two, and we have not seen that. In, in quite a while, the, you know, Leclerc and Vettel, that was in Singapore, their one-two. That was, and then last time they did that was Belgium in 2018. They erase a 45-race winless drought, and the first time in a long time that Ferrari has led every lap of the race, either, uh, you know, Carlos Sainz or the guy who won the race, Charles Leclerc. So if we were thinking and hoping that Ferrari would come out of the box hot, 
wow, they delivered in spades. In, in a, and wow, what an amazing performance that was. And the fact of the matter was, nobody expected the other part of that. And your next question is probably, you know, Max Verstappen and, uh, and, and the Red Bull guys, mm-hmm. um, you know, Sergio Perez both having mechanical problems late, which opened the door for at least Lewis Hamilton, who was not competitive, clearly off the pace with a car that's not any good, which still shocks me, to get up on the podium. So, I mean, it, that race yesterday in Bahrain at night, actually, their, their night race, surprised a lot of people, and, and in good ways, too, because if you can go by the opening race, you know, it's like a goaltender getting his shutout in the first uh, appearance with your team. Do we do we gauge it's going to be like this for the rest of the year? Don't know, but man, talk about a, a fantastic opening to the season, especially for Ferrari. Absolutely, and you know, being a Ferrari fan myself, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I love a bunch of the other drivers and a bunch of the other you know vehicles on the course sure. as well. But there was a, a part of me throughout the race yesterday thinking, all right, when's the car going to fail? When's the tire <laughs> yeah. going to puncture? Like, wh- when's that other shoe going to drop and something bad is going to happen? And it never did. No, it never did. No, and they talked to to Matteo Bonotto, who was the principal of, of of that team. And when you looked at what they were doing in the in the off season, of course, back at the factory, they have hundreds of people who make incredible amounts of money and very very deep pockets to come up with the design. New car this year. That's the other astounding part of it. I think mm-hmm. Rick is is the fact that this was brand new regs. Most of the downforce now comes from the underside of the car. Some teams interpreted that differently. Uh, Ferrari, with their their funky-looking, almost hot-dug bun-shaped side pods, really had it figured out. And you were right. History tells us that you're always waiting for the Ferrari, yeah, it looks good, and all of a sudden something happens to it. But no, it didn't. And it just underlined what a talented young guy from Monaco, Charles Leclerc, really is. And and, uh, and Carlos Sainz, who just signed, as a matter of fact, overnight, and, and what timing, an extension on his contract. So, you know, it was a lot of really good things. One other thing I noticed about the Ferrari, maybe you did too, is that normally it's red. It's got to be red. I mean, the, the, the red prancing horse, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's traditional. But it's a matte, flat finish as opposed to a shiny one, which looks kind of good, you know. And, and I, I liked what they did. They just came out of the came out of the shoot and was very, very strong and did not relent. I don't think anybody, though, expected both Red Bulls to break uh, with a fuel problem, as, as it turns out. But, you know, who who would have predicted that? And, you know, and who would have predicted it? I'm still, I, I still, for me, I mean, it's great to see Ferrari do this, Rick. It's a rambling answer, and I apologize. But the fact of the matter is, I just expected Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes to come out with all cannons firing and, and go crazy. Because this is the revenge season, right? He got He got... He played around with in that last race in Abu Dhabi last year, and regardless of what side of the debate you lay on, you know he he got fiddled with, and and that wasn't going to work. You know, in terms of being it, you know, being the right way, lost that championship, and I thought they would say, okay, now we're going to come out and show you guys what we can do. And Lewis would come out, and not to say that he wasn't determined, but they have not given them a car that's competitive. I pray to God they'll fix it, you know, and I hope they do, and I I think they will. But I thought they would come out of the gate just firing and, and sh- see what happens now. You made them angry. <laughs> you know, you might be angry, yeah. but the car ain't, so they're going to fix that. That's right. Eric Thomas is the host of Raceline Radio. You can hear it Sundays at 8 right here on 900 CHML. We're chatting about the season opening Formula One race at the Bahrain Grand Prix in which uh, Ferrari Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz finished 1-2. Lewis Hamilton third in his Silver Arrows Mercedes, back to silver instead of the uh, black that we yeah. saw a couple of years ago. The best story of the weekend, I thought... 
Kevin Magnuson. He finishes fifth in the Haas, which didn't score a point last year, but he didn't, he yeah. wasn't even in a seat uh, up until a couple of weeks ago. That's right, right. And he was in F1 before, um, left, got bounced out, basically, you know, in the way they shuffle bodies sometimes. Did some IndyCar, then came back. And, and there were always a lot of people around who liked this guy, and I do too. And he's, he's a really good guy to talk to because I've talked to him on the, on the IndyCar side and was always very personable and, and very talented, but very quiet, you know, typical you know, Scandinavian guy. He doesn't say a lot. He's not full of a lot of bombast. He doesn't go about things very flashy. He's, he just sort of keeps his head down. And a talented guy who's very methodical and has done some good things in sports car racing as well, especially on the endurance side of things. So a guy who, who thinks linearly and, and gets it done and doesn't make a lot of noise about it. And there are those in F1 who thought he never should have left. And they brought him back. And Haas, of course, with uh, Nikita Mazepin and the, and the Russian thing and, and getting rid of their sponsor and getting rid of their Russian driver, had to bring somebody in. This is an American-owned team, too, which also sparks a lot of interest because there might be another American team in a, in a name of Andretti on the grid by 2024, and there's always been that push to have more American interest in F1. They do the U.S. Grand Prix and you know, and do another race as well, but they need more American interest in terms of ownership on the marketing side of it. And 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 when you've got the Haas team that's owned by Americans, and to bring Magnussen back and to have him be that effective, and he was good all race long. He didn't fade back. He was he was in the top ten. He was in a point scoring position from the time they started it to the time they ended it. So it just sort of shows you what a talented guy he is. It's good to see him back at F1 because I think that's where he belongs. Absolutely. Canadians Lance Stroll 12th, Nicholas Latifi 16th. Yeah. E.T., we'll have to leave it there, plumb out of time, but really appreciate sure. your time, and we'll chat soon. Always enjoy these, Rick, and uh, listen, I'm glad you're an F1 fan. I always knew you were, but if you need anything more, I'm always here, and always enjoy coming on in uh, on Good Morning Hamilton. Thanks you so got much, it. Rick. Have a good one. Eric yeah. Thomas, host of Raceline Radio. You can hear it Sundays at 8 p.m. on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ice cream is one of our favorite foods, no matter what the flavor. But lo and behold, one of our favorite companies here in Canada, Tim Hortons, is out with a set of ice cream flavors. Yeah, you've probably seen them at your favorite grocery store. And here to chat about it is the VEP and head of global retail at Tim Hortons, Sarah Malik. How are you today? I'm really good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, I guess the one question that many people are asking is, why did Tim Hortons decide to jump into the ice cream market? Uh, well, you know what? Uh, uh, post-pandemic, if you see the consumer behavior and how our customers uh, have changed their uh, their shopping and buying pattern, they are focused more on indulgent categories, whether it is indulgent snacking or uh, even ice cream. Ice cream as a category has grown double digits, uh, and especially the premium pints category. Uh, that is where we are seeing a ton of growth. Now, this has become a very emotional and indulgent occasion for the consumers. And Tim Hortons being a brand which is highly emotional for Canadians, uh, emotional for Canadians, and Canadians have grown up with this brand, this is the perfect alignment uh, from the consumer standpoint. And then when we think about uh, the quality, we decided to position our brand in ice cream at the best possible quality, at a premium quality level. And we found a supplier, Shaw's, who, who is uh, based out of Ontario. We use 100% uh, Canadian uh, dairy products in this. And then uh, the uh, the supplier partner is operated by uh, by three sisters who took over uh, this plant, the manufacturing facility, and they've made it big. So I think it's a perfect combination of consumer, 
a, a great supplier partner and 100% Canadian dairy, so why not? Yeah, well, not. why not at yeah. all? Yeah, what kind of feedback have you received so far? Uh, feedback is highly positive. Uh, <clears throat> we have received more than 90, 87 to 90% positive feedback around, around the launch. Uh, the consumers and customers are really excited. The retail pa- retailer partners, they are rallying behind uh, this launch, and we are ourselves are very excited about this launch overall. Tim Hortons has launched five mouth-watering ice cream flavors this month at grocery stores across Canada. And we're talking about it with Sarah Malik, the Vice President and Head of Global Retail at Tim Hortons. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. There's five different flavors. There's salted caramel ice cap, double chocolate donut, birthday cake Timbits, apple fritter, and fruit explosion. How were those flavors chosen? Uh, So we have a lot of equity uh, within our menu items and uh, in our grocery channel what we have learned is uh, uh, Tim Hortons has a lo- lot of brand equity and once we connect it with our menu items flavors from our menu the, uh, the consumers and customers tend to react re- very positively and uh, and hence that's uh, that's one of our key differentiating factors uh, on uh, how to position our products within the market soup Category is one of the examples. Our chicken noodle soup is inspired from our menu items, and it's doing really well in the marketplace. Similarly, all the flavors that we have chosen, they're all inspired uh, by our menu items. Do you have a favorite flavor? I do. Salted caramel iced cappuccino is my favorite flavor. (laughs) You can't go wrong with that. Yeah, absolutely. Did the success of Tim Biebs convince Tim Hortons that ice cream was going to be a hit as well? Um. What convinced us is innovative. Uh, our consumers are looking for more and more innovation, whether it is uh, within our marketing campaigns or launch of ice cream. Uh, the ideation of ice cream began uh, uh, began uh, earlier. Having said that, both programs were uh, were sort of uh, separate. Uh, but uh, one one thing that connects uh, the two is innovation connecting with the Canadian customers, and that's what the key piece is there. One more question for you, Sarab. Speaking of uh, Tim Biebs, is Tim Hortons going to be working with future celebrities on endorsements, whether it's with uh, Justin Bieber or maybe uh, another celebrity? Uh, I can't comment upon that uh, uh, at this moment. What what I can comment is Tim Hortons will continue continue to stay focused on the guests, on the consumers, and continue to create excitement within the marketplace. Well, the ice cream is certainly exciting. It has created some very positive waves for Tim Hortons, and uh, we're going to be taste-testing each of the flavors, one per day, throughout this week, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, Sarab, thank you very much for the time, and congrats on another home run for Tim Hortons. Thank you so much. Really nice talking to you. Sarab Malik is the Vice President, Head of Global Retail at Tim Hortons, as they unleash Five ice cream flavors for your tasting pleasure. And they sound oh so good. You can get them in your local grocery store. They are in, uh, I've seen them in several places in and around town, so widely available. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. March Madness is dribbling along and there is a growing call to have NCAA athletes get their fair share of the multi-billion dollar college sports industry. Now, whether it's basketball or football, the two biggest sports down south, and you can probably make a case 
here up north as well. Athletes give it their all day in and day out, practice, games, post-game news conferences, the whole kit and caboodle. They don't get paid for doing so. Now, is it fun for them to go out and win championships, make a name for themselves, get drafted into pro leagues, make some money? Sure. But all along the way, as they are fighting the good fight, these colleges and universities are raking in the dough. Should it continue that way or should change start to happen? Steve Siebold is a former collegiate and pro athlete, now a certified financial educator and also the author of a book, How Money Works, Stop Being a Sucker. Love the title. Steve, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Rick. Thanks. It seems to me mind-boggling that college university athletes don't get a salary or a stipend because they're bringing in so much money for these schools. Yeah, it's an absolute ripoff. It's been going on for years. The NCA is, is, uh, has taken advantage of these kids. And you just mentioned, of course, all the money comes from football and basketball. And those kids tend to come from, from the, the tougher side of town and poor families and who don't have the means or, or typically the education to fight back. And so they take advantage of it. I mean, if it was tennis or golf or uh, polo, uh, it would be a different, it would be a whole different thing. Athletes can finally cash in on endorsements, but th- that's only going to benefit the star players, right? What about all the other athletes? Yeah, exactly. Just the very top stars that are actually marketable at the public level. So the rest of the kids just, you know, just get ripped off. And meanwhile, these colleges, as you said, are raking in, you know, the NCAA in general, is raking, they're raking in billions of dollars. These colleges are building wings on the school they, you know, on the on the backs of the of labor of the of these twenty year old kids who really don't know the difference. They don't even know enough to know that they're being ripped off. Steve Siebold is our guest. He's a former collegiate and professional athlete, now a certified financial educator and author of the book How Money Works: Stop Being a Sucker. You can find out more info howmoneyworks.com. Is there an appetite for change? Are we seeing some movements uh, in this regard? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's slow for sure, but uh, there it's certainly been rising over the last. I mean, I've been talking about this in the media for 10 years and a lot of other people have. And, uh, and it's, it's going to happen eventually. The NCAA is, is really, uh, has really done the wrong thing here. And everyone, I think most people really realize that that are involved in the sports. There are thousands of athletes in dozens of sports in the NCAA. What is the starting rate, do you think, that these athletes should be getting? Well, I think it's just like the, the compensation structure, which that's one of the things the NSA and, and the people that, that are against this say, they say, oh, how would you possibly you know, structure the incentive compensation program? Just like you do a company. The president makes the most, or the CEO makes the most, and the president makes the second probably most, and then the vice presidents, and you just go down the, the corporate hierarchy and you schedule it the same way. Uh, as you would a, a company. It's not really that difficult. The NCAA has made the uh, claim that paying athletes would disrupt the competitive balance in college sports. We're already seeing that now. Yeah, isn't that convenient for them? Isn't that convenient that they will take all the money? If it was just so pure sports and pure fun and you know pure competition, then they shouldn't charge tickets. They shouldn't, they shouldn't charge anyone anything that. It's either all or nothing, Rick. I mean, you can't have it both ways, right? I mean, it just is incredible. Yeah, and we shouldn't be allowed to bet on them either. No, absolutely not. People are getting rich off of these kids. And again, imagine if it was – I played tennis uh, back in the day, uh, college tennis and professional tennis. Of course, tennis doesn't make any money for schools, neither does golf. The football and basketball programs fund those programs. But if the, the kids that come typically from tennis backgrounds and golf backgrounds are typically rich kids. I was not a rich kid, but, but most of the kids are rich kids. And, uh, and, and those parents are highly educated. I mean, if, if it were, if tennis and golf made all the money, all those kids would be millionaires. <laughs> Probably so. Steve, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks, Rick. Steve Seabold, former collegiate and pro athlete, now a certified financial educator, author of the book How Money Works, Stop Being a Sucker. You can check it out online, howmoneyworks.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.